Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Dr. Alon Baseman, an infection control specialist with the University Health Network, joins us on the show to discuss the rise in COVID-19 numbers and the changes in restrictions here in the Hamilton and London areas. The Ontario Pharmacists Association is calling for a more coordinated strategy to ensure that healthcare professionals are ready to administer vaccines when they arrive in Canada. What's their plan? Well, we'll talk about it. And over the seven months of the pandemic, the Ford government has only thoroughly inspected 11 11 of over 600 homes. How do we fix the broken problem if we're not paying attention to it? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The numbers are daunting, quite frankly. Over 1,900 cases in Ontario alone yesterday. Uh, In Hamilton, uh, Saturday cases uh, totaled 108. Yesterday, 72 new cases. London Middlesex uh, having a pretty tough weekend too 39 new coronavirus cases along with 16 recoveries on sunday according to middlesex london health unit so uh and they are probably moving into the orange code uh hamilton of course is still in red and will be for the next little while unless these numbers continue to go up in which case we could actually go into lockdown mode and the uh, medical officer of health for the hamilton area dr elizabeth richardson says well it's time to tighten the rules Reduced capacity and limits at shopping malls and retail establishments, active screening at workplaces, shopping malls and retail businesses, the posting of capacity limits on based on physical distancing requirements, and appointing a manager to develop, implement, and actively monitor a safety plan in workplaces, shopping malls, and retail businesses. So, uh, in other jurisdictions, Toronto, of course, which has been in lockdown, has the even more stringent restrictions. But is it working? Well, judging by the number of new cases, I think that's a question we need to ask ourselves. Joining us to talk about all of this is Dr. Alon Baseman, who is the infectious disease specialist with the University Health Network. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, we, we've talked about jurisdiction after jurisdiction, Doctor, that are implementing rules such as Hamilton is under right now, London Middlesex moving into orange. Uh, the numbers continue to go up. Uh, are, are we targeting the right groups here by putting these restrictions in? Yeah, the, it's very challenging for the public health uh, officials to make these kinds of decisions, and when they do, they don't make them lightly, of course. So what mm-hmm. they're trying to do is you know, they're, they're using whatever tools they have at their disposal to try to reduce the number of cases. The messaging about private gatherings and social gatherings, of course, should continue, and it is continuing, but those only go so far. So w- the next best step you have is to try to restrict you know, whatever you, ha- you can actually control, and that includes businesses and restaurants. So, of course, there are downstream consequences to some of this. You know, People may end up going to more private gatherings if they can't go to bars or restaurants. But this is kind of uh, also an, sends an important message to the population that we need to take this very seriously and, and buckle down. Are we taking it seriously, in your opinion, doctor? I mean, the numbers in the summertime did decrease uh, with some of the restrictions during the lockdown. Uh, but there's an argument to be made that, well, that was because it was nicer weather and we spent a lot more time outside. That's not going to happen in January and February in Canada. Right. Um, and there was a message from the federal uh, public health agency, that the deputy, saying that people are fatigued with the COVID restrictions. And, it, you know, I understand why that might happen over the course of several months of having to restrict your activity. And we do have a big gap about the number of cases, the, where the cases are coming from. But to some extent, we do know that a lot of it does come down to these gatherings that people are having outside of public spaces that lead to these transmission events. Uh, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten people that end up leading to transmissions and then bigger gatherings as well. So it is a very, it's a big challenge to try to message that to people, try to get them to, to avoid those kinds of things. 
Problem, of course, with that is uh, it's, it's one thing to, to put restrictions in on commercial developments, restaurants, bars, and, and things of that nature, even stores now, uh, because you can police that to a certain extent. I mean, you know, there's a protocol in place, and th- there's a responsibility there that most of the time is being followed. But how do you how do you police and oversee private gatherings? I mean, that, that's, you can't be knocking on every door and saying, how many people do you have in there? No, that's, that's right. Uh, and in the places in the world where you've seen people do that, it, it, it came to down to very, uh, very severe circumstances when the cases were completely out of control. For example, in uh, Australia, that was one of the methods they used to try to reduce transmission. So generally speaking, in Canada, that hasn't happened. So you, you'd have to get to a place where the situation is extremely dire for that to be a, you know, something that the public has an appetite for, for this kind of level of policing of these restrictions. And at best, currently, what you can do is, you know, educate and have people uh, be aware of what the restrictions are, make the make the the messaging very, very clear so people understand, and then uh, hope that people follow them. I, I want to talk about that, maybe expand on it if we could just a little bit. And mm-hmm. the Australian example, I think, is is pretty insightful here, and and I think we can learn something from that. Uh, when they say lockdown in Australia, and they've already gone through this, of course, because uh, they were their winter was during our summer. Uh, and so that was the the, the flu vac- time epidemic, and of course, uh, and, and the COVID epidemic. Uh, that when you mention lockdown, I mean they closed off neighborhoods and actually fined people if you went outside of your neighborhood. You weren't even allowed to walk your dog around the block in some neighborhoods uh, where they considered to be high risk. Is there any appetite at all for us to go to that extreme? I think at this stage it's not likely. Uh, one of the reasons is that the vaccine news has been so uplifting over the last few weeks, and it's it's going to be imminent over the course of January, February, and March. It doesn't mean that it'll be perfect, but it'll, it will significantly reduce uh, the number of cases, and hopefully it'll try to reduce this ever having to go to that level of extreme of lockdown. The, you know, on paper it does sound like it's very effective being able to reduce the cases quickly by having this level of policing. On the other hand, there were examples of, you know, marginalized communities being the ones disproportionately affected by those kinds of policing efforts. So there, there is some sensitivity and some, you know, careful work you need to do before you, you go into doing that kind of thing for, for populations because you may end up causing a lot of distress and especially now with the, with the vaccine use, what it is, and we, you know, hopefully we don't need to go all the way to that level. What about the other, some of the other things that are going on here? I'd like to get your, your uh, thoughts on some of the other things. Um, we already know about reduced capacity limits on shopping malls and stores, and for people that don't understand that and maybe forgot what happened in the spring, uh, there's going to be a counter at the front door, and if there's uh, 50 people allowed in there, if you're 51, you wait until somebody leaves. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot more difficult to do that in December than it was in, in you know April or May and June. So that's going to be there. Uh, posting capacity limits, we've already been through that. So what about the screening aspect, though? Screening questionnaires that are going to be issued, and, and screening itself before you even enter a, an establishment like that. Have we dropped the ball on that? Is that something we need to be more stringent about? Yeah, there's a lot of good arguments back and forth about the value of screening. We certainly do it in hospital settings and all clinic settings to uh, screen all patients and visitors to make sure they don't have symptoms. You have to rely on people being honest about their symptoms for that to be effective. You have to have a, a group of people who are willing to say, yes, I'm symptomatic. I'm not, uh, not going to come into this establishment. You hope that it'll catch a few people but, uh, you know, it's not clear, you know, if you can't go all the way to a store to want to buy something, will you be honest about your symptoms? Will you be able to tell people, will you want to tell people, yes, I'm symptomatic, I shouldn't come in here? I suppose it does add also a little bit of value of education for people about the symptoms that they should be screening for. Um, and it does add a little bit extra layer of, uh, of that protection. So I hope people do, do take it very seriously and, you know, answer the questions very honestly. 
when we were going through the lockdown back in the springtime, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the hospital setting because I had occasion to, to be in the hospital a couple of different times during that time, uh, they took your temperature before you even got through the door, and, and there was a questionnaire that you had to fill out. I know some commercial establishments are doing that as well. Is is that a, a, a decent way to, to make a determination right then and there whether or not that person is, is, is COVID positive? It's a challenging kind of tool. Uh, it's not very sensitive, which means you'll probably, you'll probably miss some cases. And it's not very specific either, but certainly if somebody has a fever, it's at least somewhat suggestive that they may have COVID. There are alternative explanations, of course, during this flu season why somebody might have a fever. A lot of it is, 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 making, is kind of reassuring the public that you are doing something. You're being active of screening people. You are paying attention to people. Um, but it's, it's not very effective. A lot of people have very mild symptoms with COVID, of course, and still be able to transmit. So in and of itself, it will not be uh, the best way to try to screen people for COVID at the doors. With that in mind, then, could you actually be asymptomatic and not have a fever at all and, and still be carrying the, the virus? Yeah, absolutely. It's only the more severe forms of COVID um, that will have fevers. Uh, still, a, still a sizable uh, chunk of the patients with COVID will have fevers, but there, is, there are significant numbers of patients who are either entirely symptomatic or mildly symptomatic who will not have a fever at all. Furthermore, if you are having a fever, you may take something like a Tylenol or some other uh, anti-fever medication, and then you won't have a fever when you arrive at the store. So there are ways of, of masking the fever as well. So in and of itself, unfortunately, isn't a great tool to try to uh, screen people for COVID symptoms. Doctor, one of the more controversial areas, of course, is schooling. Um, and I know that was controversial right from the beginning here in Ontario uh, because of the, the back-to-school plan, which was uh, chided by some people and they said they didn't go far enough vis-a-vis uh, -vis social distancing and everything. Uh, the numbers are, from what I'm hearing anyway, to be expected. There are some cases. We had some in Hamilton and in London, Middlesex, uh, over the last couple of weeks uh, in schools. Uh, but there's a, 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 an argument that seems to be growing that I know you're aware of, but I'd like to get your opinion on it for our listeners. Uh, some are suggesting that, uh, that that's a false uh, sense of security with the numbers in, in elementary schools especially, uh, because they may be able to be carrying it and be asymptomatic. You know, if they are positive, they're going to go home and spread that, and that's going to cause increased numbers someplace else. So in other words, uh, they may not actually manifest the, itself in, in the children, but they could be carriers and spreading it out through the community and that community spread. Uh, that seems to be a growing uh, consensus with some doctors that I've talked to. Is there any legitimacy to that? Yeah, I think when you look at when the, the policy started back in September, uh, certainly what they put in place made a lot of sense in terms of screening for symptoms, having the kids mask and everything. And likely schools contributed very little to the spread of the disease at that point with the overall prevalence of disease going to be very low at that stage. But as the cases rose in the community, then likely schools are going to be more and more of a contribution. It's kind of a back and forth phenomenon where the number of cases in the community contribute to higher cases at school, and then the school cases will likely contribute to higher cases in the community. So as that process continues to evolve, we need to be able to try to track school cases even better. And you may have heard, the audience probably heard that there was cases in, uh, in Toronto where they were just screening uh, staff and patients and uh, students uh, just with testing of asymptomatic people. And they were able to catch a significant number of people. And that was kind of why people are bringing this more to the forefront and trying to understand what, what is actually going on here. 
Interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's the school that shut down last week, too, wasn't it? Because of the large, uh, large number of cases that propped up in the last little while. But Toronto has responded to that, Doctor. That's, that's an excellent example. Uh, Toronto Public Health has now made some changes to their screening process for schools that now says that any student with even one symptom must stay home, that, and siblings included. Uh, and that if a student has uh, one symptom, they got to stay home, self-isolate, and get tested, and suggesting that uh, if one student has to go home and stay isolated, that uh, the rest of the family, the kids in the family, have to stay isolated. Is is that a, an appropriate protocol, or is it overreacting, do you think? Yeah, I think at this stage it makes a lot of sense to try to be more strict with comes to, when it comes to testing of students and also the symptom screening. It's just that the challenge will be how does the city and how does the economy respond to that. What I mean is that if you have a lot of healthcare workers or essential staff or other people who work, having their children more likely to have to stay at home for even a minor symptom or a single symptom, how, is, uh, how are those people going to be paid? How are they going to be able to provide childcare? How is the rest of the, the city going to be able to function now? Because if people don't have paid leave, if they don't have coverage for childcare, and more of your children are now going to have to stay home for, for minor symptoms, it's going to create a major problem. If you take uh, healthcare workers, for example, many healthcare workers, of course, have young children at home. They may have even more than one child at home. If now they have to be staying at home to provide care for their child, how are, you know who's going to be, be able to make up that deficit at work for them for the essential work that they provide, the essential help that they provide in, in these settings? It, it's going to be a big challenge, and the city and all the jurisdictions that are applying this standard have to think about solutions for that. It, we see these numbers increasing, and I know it's it's troubling for all of, uh, especially the specialists such as yourself that have been trying to battle this and trying to inform the public about this. Uh, and you mentioned the vaccine a minute ago, and as we mentioned, there's a dry run that's going to be happening here in Canada. Apparently, the UK is going to start vaccinating uh, tomorrow, I understand. Uh, are we letting our guard down because we figure the end is near here and we're going to be vaccinated and, and the sun will shine and we'll all sing happily and be healthy forevermore? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure if the public, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff that we're talking about in terms of the re people not uh, adhering to the measures even preceded the good news about the vaccine. So probably to some extent it was not related to vaccine news. You know, two things about that. One is that the, I think an important message to give people is that it's kind of like being at the end of a war, so to speak, or closer to the end of a war is that if you buckle down now, if you do everything you can now, then you'll be able to enjoy things later. You'll be able to enjoy holidays when they come up you know, in the near future. You'll be able to enjoy vacations later. Nothing, and the second thing I would say is that it won't return to normal for a very long time. What the vaccine will do will dramatically reduce the number of cases, but people need to get used to the idea that a lot of these measures will still be in place, including masking and social distancing. So the, those two messages combined are, are kind of hard for the public to swallow, that things will get better, but not completely normal. But I think everyone should look at it in, this, in a way that we're very close now to having a significant improvement situation, a dramatic difference that we, you know, something that really tangible to be able to reduce cases very quickly. And that's great news. So, and that, that's something I think we need to be clear on, is this vaccine will not eradicate uh, COVID-19. It's still, it's still going to be around. That's right. It'll be very challenging. You'd have to get very high rates of vaccination to, to even come close to eradication. What it will do is be able to do a lot more things uh, smoothly than we couldn't do before, like the schools functioning, like hospitals being able to function smoothly, like the reduction in outbreaks and uh, long-term care facilities. A lot of those things will be dramatically improved, but not not 100%. 
the burden on hospitals is something that we haven't paid a whole lot of attention to. We saw how dramatic it was in the springtime. We never really got to the stage in Canada that they did down in the States. But I'm, I'm hearing that we're, we're getting close to that line now with some of these new cases, especially in Quebec, uh, Alberta, and Ontario. That's right. In Ontario, for example, we are approaching the, the number that we were at in about early April, uh, mid-April, of the number of ICU beds that were filled with patients who were affected by COVID. So that's exactly the most important metric that, we, that most people are looking at is, is the hospitals. Once the hospitals overwhelmed, the entire healthcare system collapses, and being able to provide care for other things, non-COVID things as well, will be, able, will be significantly reduced. So this is one of the most important things to pay attention to, is what is the capacity of the ICUs, what is the capacity of our hospitals. And for now, things are approaching, very slowly approaching the values that we were looking at earlier in in March and April. Well, the fact that some hospitals are already making plans, uh, contingency plans, I guess, for for add-ons, you know, and and, and temporary hospital tents and things of this nature, I guess, indicates the severity of that. Uh, Doctor, always a pleasure to get your expertise on this. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Thank you very much. Take care. Dr. Alon Baseman, infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. With First Minister set to meet this week to discuss health care funding and COVID-19 efforts, including vaccine distribution and logistics, the Ontario Pharmacists Association is calling for a more coordinated strategy to ensure that health professionals are ready to administer vaccines when they arrive in Canada. There's a whole lot of subtopics that we need to get into here as well, but this is a, a rather pivotal day. It's what they call a dry run that's going to be happening here in Canada. Reporter Terry Pedwell explains. The first vaccine made by Pfizer-BioNTech could be approved for use in Canada as early as this week. And Major General Danny Fortin, who's leading the military through the vaccine distribution process, says the dry run is intended to get everyone involved comfortable with the intense requirements of handling a vaccine that has to be kept below minus 70 Celsius at all times. We'll have a dry run uh, at, uh, in every province. The National Operations Centre quarterbacking the effort is looking at two phases of a vaccine rollout, starting with about 6 million doses this winter, enough to vaccinate 3 million people with two doses each. Terry Pedro, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. As we mentioned, there's a lot of uh, logistics to this, too, and, uh, and some concerns being raised by the Pharmacists Association. Uh, to get some clarity on that, please to welcome to the program Justin Bates, who is the CEO for the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Uh, Justin, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Good morning. My pleasure. This is a, a, a important day, I guess, as, as a, we just heard, the, a dry run today. I guess it's sort of like a wedding rehearsal. You go through all the motions, uh, but there's no, it's, it's just, they're not going to vaccinate anybody. They're just going to show exactly how this is going to roll out. Are, are we ready for this? Well, it's a great question. I don't think we'll know until we get everything set up and, and running. I know that this is certainly something that has been well-coordinated from all levels of government, including what you mentioned, the National Operations Centre doing a dry run-through to make sure that we have the logistics down uh, and we have all of the other uh, variables that are going to need to be in place in order to have a successful rollout of this vaccine because it's an unprecedented situation where we'll have demand like we've never seen before. And the cold chain requirements uh, to maintain the integrity of the vaccine is something that uh, is atypical in this space with the minus 75 uh, degrees uh, requirement. How do you how do you deal with something like that, Justin? I mean, uh, let's face it, not everybody has access to that kind of material and that kind of machine. I mean, my local pharmacy, which we rely on an awful lot, they got what looks like a beer fridge, and that's where they store medications that need to be chilled. Uh, but minus 70 is a different. Uh, that's a different ballgame altogether, isn't it? 
It certainly is, and it's going to require require a different degree of sophistication. There are freezers available, and even packaging that you can uh, procure with uh, dry ice packs uh, in order to ship and maintain that temperature at minus 70 degrees. So uh, it has been done, and it, there are medications uh, in the system that do require minus 70 degrees uh, or something similar to that uh, temperature. So it's just a matter of the scale, and I think that's where we'll have to think about from a provincial standpoint, as um, the vaccines <clears throat> become available and distributed to the provinces, do you do this through centralized uh, depots? Um, and we know that there's other vaccines coming that will have different requirements. It'll be more typical to what the flu vaccine is, where the storage is two to eight degrees. So it'll depend on the availability of the different types of vaccines and uh, the different providers that will be stepping up to provide the uh, public with the vaccination. What role, uh, if any, are the pharmacies going to play in this? And I'm glad you mentioned the, the flu vaccine as a, as a comparator here. Uh, I mean, let's face it, you know, there was a time where you had to call your doctor, make an appointment to get your shot. And, and thankfully, one of the, the, the restrictions that they relaxed here was to give pharmacists a lot more ability to be able to, to serve customers like that. And, and, well, just last week, I got my flu shot at my local pharmacy. Uh, is that going to be available at pharmacies or is this going to have to be more institutionalized? I think once it becomes available for community administration, pharmacies will play an integral role in order to get everyone vaccinated. This is going to take a team effort, so it's going to require all hands on deck from uh, public health units to physicians and to pharmacies. And we've seen year over year certainly an increase in demand and preference from uh, Ontarians wanting to get their flu shots through pharmacies. So I think it only makes sense to include pharmacists in the rollout and we believe based on our discussions with government that uh, pharmacists will be included uh, in the COVID vaccine rollout. The question is going to be one of uh, access and distribution and how much allocation is going to go to each part of the healthcare system. So that's something that we'll look at uh, as the province determines the amount they're going to get from the federal procurement uh, and stockpile. From what you've read, and, and again, you know, it's kind of hard to, to pull information out of this because you're getting different stories from different premiers and, and allocations about when this is going to be available, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is this going to meet the immediate demand that's going to be out there? I mean, are we going to tell people, sorry, you're going to have to wait a few weeks, uh, even though we have the vaccine available, there's others that have to come first? Uh, is that going to be the protocol to your, from what you've been able to gather? I think what makes the most sense is based on the supply coming in to prioritize certain uh, populations, in particular frontline healthcare providers, including pharmacists, to be vaccinated since they're on the front lines uh, and exposed uh, to potentially getting uh, COVID-19. And then you're going to look at uh, residents in long-term care facilities, uh, vulnerable parts of our population that have immunocompromised conditions or comorbidities, um, and certainly elderly uh, people. So I think what you're going to see is uh, prioritization. And then the full community availability is not likely to happen until Q2, maybe even Q3. So into the summer, fall, where we'll have the full complement of the supply. What are your members hearing about uh, the anticipation of this? Because uh, I'm getting mixed messages from uh, a lot of the people we've talked to in this program over the last couple of weeks, uh, Justin. That some are anxious and want to be first in line, ready to roll up the sleeve today if they could. There's a certain amount of trepidation with other people, though, because they're thinking, well, you know, this got rushed. And have they covered all the bases? And maybe I want somebody else to get it for a while and just see what, what kind of side effects they're going to be. Uh, they don't want to be first, is the phraseology. But uh, hasn't that already been covered with phase three of the testing? 
It has, and I think you're seeing uh, other jurisdictions have already gone out. UK just got a uh, vaccine from um, Pfizer uh, last week, so I think you're going to see many people with this vaccine hesitancy. It will go away, uh, and I think it's important for healthcare providers, for politicians, and other leaders in the industry to demonstrate the safety and efficacy of the product by getting a flu shot and being very public about it. There's an education and outreach component to this, and it's going to be critical that we coordinate and have consistent messaging from all of the different public health units, public health Ontario, uh, and also federally, so that people understand that this is safe uh, and it will help protect public health and keep the economy open. Well, that's what a doctor told me last week, uh, because I raised that question about, you know, people didn't want to be the first one because they weren't sure of the side effects. Uh, I said there's tens of thousands of people have already done that. They've already, you're not first in line. No matter if you're the first one here in Hamilton or London to get the vaccine, tens of thousands of people have gone through phase three, and they've already been checked for side effects, etc. cetera. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I I think that I hope anyway is going to reassure people that uh, that you know they have a, yes they have accelerated the process here to find a vaccine for this, but uh, to my knowledge anyway, I, Justin, I haven't get any information at all that they've skipped a step or any, anything like that. Absolutely, yeah. No, there's been no uh, steps that have been skipped. This has gone through the uh, normal process for approvals and clinical trials. So we know it's it's safe and effective. Um, and, uh, you know, we would have loved to see this vaccine even earlier, but they had to go through the, the process. And what you've seen is, yes, it is record time, but that's because it really has been uh, a focus, uh, unlike any other focus that the pharmaceutical companies have had, uh, because it is a global pandemic. And uh, they put more resources into this. There was certainly uh, an investment to get this vaccine ready and going because we can't get back to normal until we have uh, the population vaccinated. And I think the key here is that we've seen over years an increase in anti-vaxxers, people that are not uh, buying into the science, if you will. And, and this is something that uh, we need to address long term, whether it's with the adult immunizations, childhood vaccinations and with the COVID vaccine that the science is sound. Um, and it's, you know, no different than lockdowns and you see people with uh, the anti-mask uh, protests. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there's core people that uh, see a conspiracy in this. Um, but clearly, this is uh, sound science and something that's going to be critically important for our public health and economy. Well, let's address that if we could, because I've, I've obviously done a number of segments about the, uh, you know, the maskless people and the anti-vaxxers, and it's all a, you know, conspiracy, government conspiracy theory. We've heard all of these things, and and you, you know, just Google any of that stuff, and you'll probably find twenty-five web pages that are going to come up that are going to validate that. But it's not true. Uh, one of the common things that I'm hearing, though, uh, Justin, that I'd like to get your comment on, uh, is this: they're looking at basically what's going to be in the vaccine itself and saying, "Aha, there's mercury in there. There's this. There's that." And and, and so that's bad for you. You know, you take this stuff; it's going to kill you. And that, and they just perpetuate that myth. Uh, and what they don't seem to entertain or don't want to entertain anyway uh, is, first of all, it's trace amounts of, in there, and second of all, the reason they're in there is is because of the chemical reaction and, and activity they do, that's going to happen within your body. Well, that's right. And and when you look at you know the anti-vaxxer movement. One of the things that we're starting to see is the the impact of that. Um, there was an outbreak of measles last year, for example, in BC, and the cost, uh, both from a societal standpoint and a healthcare system perspective, is quite enormous. And we don't want a reintroduction of these uh, many of these conditions. And uh, I think by by showing that the science is sound and explaining it, educating the public. Uh, you'll see a bit of a turnaround. And, and I think we saw that 
frankly, with the flu vaccine this year. We had unprecedented demand, um, as we've heard about, uh, both in pharmacies and across uh, the system for the flu shot in a way that we haven't seen before. So I'm hopeful that that's our, not an anomaly, that that's the new normal, that people are understanding the importance of getting vaccinated to keep the uh, keep people out of hospitals and to keep people safe. Well, and I guess that's the case because I know that I've already heard stories anecdotally. I guess there's actually there's supposed to be anyway two kinds of flu vaccine. There's almost like well, I guess they could call it a supercharged uh, for people who may have pre-existing conditions or, or things of that nature, concerns, or for people over 65. Uh, and it's recommended, at least it was at the beginning of the flu season, that they should get that vaccine. Uh, I'm hearing now that uh, it's, it's just about gone. I mean, they had such a, a run on that because so many people were lining up for it uh, that you you can still get a flu shot, but the supercharged stuff that they've got for the uh, the people with those conditions uh, is is less available, shall we say, and, and not available at all in some areas, uh, which which is problematic. But it's actually, I, I think it speaks to your point that there's a lot more people lining up now to say, yeah, well, you know what, we're going haven't had a flu shot for a few years, but I'm doing it this year. I think that's absolutely accurate. Um, there was 1.3 million high dose, uh, the supercharged uh, version of the flu shot this year, which protects against a different three set of strains uh, for seniors. And uh, part of that is, I think, because people were afraid of another lockdown or seeing what's happening with the pandemic. Um, you know, that's uh, 1.3 million is up from last year where there was wastage. Um, and then we had over 5.1 million this year of uh, total vaccine that was ordered. So the question will be is planning for the next flu season and certainly le- lessons learned for the COVID vaccine is uh, do you order for 6 million next year? You know, is this the new normal for every flu season? Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what the watermark is for vaccinations for COVID. Is it going to be 80% of the population? I think the, the governments are planning on vaccinating everyone. So there will be, in this case, enough vaccine uh, for every uh, individual across the, the country that will want one. But uh, where we land uh, will certainly dictate how uh, ordering and uh, what the process will be moving forward for other vaccinations. You mentioned about some of the other vaccines that are going to be coming into the market in the next little while, and and really that's up to Health Canada. I understand that, but uh, they'll they'll make their evaluations and and give it a stamp of approval, hopefully sooner than later. But would that, as they come on, Justin, would that impact the the the, the time frame in which the general population uh, might be vaccinated? Because as you say, I'm hearing more and more now. It might be the the end of the summer, early fall before it's generally going to be out there for everybody that wants one, as opposed to some of the groups that are going to be uh, targeted in. In situations like that but if if the johnson and johnson vaccine comes on and, and moderna and others that are, are are given the stamp of approval by health canada does that move that process faster it certainly does um because of this the magnitude of this undertaking from a supply chain perspective uh and manufacturing and so forth uh because we're not just dealing with one country we're dealing with the entire uh, uh world uh, not respect uh, the more manufacturers that come on with different specifications and that are going through the approval process with the FDA and Health Canada and other regulatory bodies across the world, that will uh, increase the availability of the vaccine. So once we go through the prioritization uh, and some, to some degree rationing of the vaccine in the uh, January to March timeframe, I believe then more will come uh, in terms of the community availability for um, citizens across the province. 
When you're dealing with something like this, especially with this vaccine and with this uh, coronavirus, uh, and we just mentioned there's two or three different kinds, and, and the ones that have been okayed so far, especially the Pfizer one that seems to be in the lead right now and hopefully is going to be okayed in Canada, it's a two-dose shot. You know, you get one, and 30 days later you get the second shot on that. Uh, I'm told Moderna is probably going to be the same way, but we're hearing that some of the other ones, including Johnson & Johnson, uh, might be just a one-shot uh, deal, uh, one inoculation. Is there a dramatic difference in, in the impact that that's going to have and what it does, and the impact it has on your body? Yeah, I'm not sure what the clinical uh, impacts are, you know, and the difference between the two doses, which we've seen uh, uh, likely, well, we will see, likely approved by Health Canada in the next uh, five to seven days uh, versus, say, something from Johnson Johnson that would be a, a single uh, dose. Um, I think overall we would probably, um, it would be safe to say that they would have the same efficacy or they wouldn't be approved. Uh, and I think it is uh, certainly ideal to have only one dose if, if it's the same efficacy because it reduces the likelihood of someone not coming in for the second dose. It also reduces costs um, and just the overall complexity. So, um, But, you know, this is going to be a phased process, and we're fortunate that we have uh, vaccines coming out, even if there are two doses, uh, in order to start the process. And it's going to take a village, as they say. Uh, this is not uh, going to be solved by one manufacturer and one product. Justin, what about that second dose? Uh, you know, if somebody gets the first dose and you're counting on them actually to come back in, in 25 or 30 days or whatever the criteria is going to be to get that second dose. And I, I've seen some concerns raised that, well, you know, maybe they won't. Maybe they just figure one shot's enough. Uh, I don't want to go through that second shot. Is, is that, has that been a problem with your members over the years when, when that sort of uh, inoculation procedure is in place? Generally speaking, adherence is an issue, whether it's chronic medications or acute medications. Uh, we see uh, in the case where you're supposed to take uh, something uh, such as a hypertensive medication where you, know, you don't have a specific pain to remind you to take the medication, there's about a 50% cliff after six months of people that are non-adherent not taking their, their medications. We don't necessarily see that in vaccinations because it's a much shorter window that you're referring to. Um, in the case of travel vaccines, and some you have to do three. So, um, but there is a risk. There's, there's no question there's a risk of somebody that might forget uh, and or just decide that uh, the first dose is enough. So education is going to be important. Follow-up to the patient uh, is also important and booking an appointment so that it's in their, their calendars. And it's things that pharmacy does today. They have a number of apps and technologies that they use in order to remind patients uh, that they uh, need to come back in. So that will reduce or at least mitigate the circumstances of people not getting the, the second dose. Um, and I think just the general awareness is much different with COVID than in any other instance of medication. Well, I guess that's a, a, an ongoing problem that pharmacists and doctors, I guess, are facing too. Uh, you know, you get medication, you prescribe medication for whatever you're, is ailing you at the time. As soon as you start feeling better, a lot of people just say, I don't need the rest of this. You know, I, I, know, I know they said to take it for 10 days, but it's only been five and I feel great. And you don't. And, and then bingo, you, you, you get problems after that. So that it's it's along those same lines. I guess we're just, as you mentioned, education is going to be a key part in that. And, and that's one of the key roles that pharmacies play in a situation like this, isn't it? To make sure that people are aware of, of what's in here and, and the protocol and the impact it's going to have and, and to make sure that they come back too. That's, uh, that's the discussion you have between the pharmacist and the, and the, and the customer. That's right. I think the, uh, the value here is the access to the pharmacist through the community. Uh, also, uh, we have data that shows that patients on average uh, per year see their pharmacist about 12 times. 
Um, and uh, that gives them lots of opportunities to have that clinical touch point. Um, and uh, with the move in COVID to more appointment-based uh, modeling so that uh, we still have an on-demand service walk-in, of course, uh, at any pharmacy, but more and more you're seeing scheduled appointments. And I think that will increase uh, the likelihood of people coming in. And uh, it's left, it's not left to an ad hoc. Uh, hope I remind uh, myself or remember to go in uh, with all of those uh, different applications in place and I think we'll uh, definitely be utilizing and leveraging all of that to make sure that people get uh, vaccinated. Wastage is a big issue because there's a cost uh, both from a public health perspective and just the dollars uh, in these dosages whether it's the flu vaccine or any immunization and pharmacists uh, through our pharmacy-led distribution network have uh, demonstrated that we have huge value when it comes to very low numbers of spoilage and wastage of any vaccine. Uh, Justin, always uh, great to get somebody on who can kind of cut through the rhetoric and get right down to the facts on this. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Justin Bates, CEO for the Ontario Pharmacists Association, and uh, hopefully the premiers can and the prime minister can get their act together and develop a protocol. We'll talk about that, of course, later in the week after those meetings take place. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about long-term care. After the excellent uh, Global News uh, 10-part series that we ran over the last couple of weeks uh, about uh, care gone wrong, uh, the the terrible circumstances that are going on in the long-term care facilities, uh, we are raising questions, and I think legitimate questions, about how the rollout of uh, this COVID-19 vaccine is going to happen in long-term care facilities. We're told... Uh, by many governments, and the federal government seemed to indicate this, uh, the prime minister did, that uh, uh, that's that's going to be one of the priority groups, the people in long-term care facilities. But is it going to solve everything that's going on? Well, you know, in, in our series about care gone wrong, uh, Karen Cumming, who co-authored the book The Indispensable Survival Guide to Ontario's Long-Term Care System, says that Ontario maybe should take a page from what some Scandinavian countries have done. They've built new facilities that only have private rooms. And the private rooms also have their own laundry facilities. Every room has its own bathroom. Uh, some of them might have some kitchen facilities so that there's, they're self-contained. There's no chance of spreading a virus to someone else. Uh, interesting idea. Uh, we kind of broached that subject with the Premier when he was on the program a little while ago. And, uh, well, there's a cost to that. And I don't know that the government's ready to actually go down that road. But uh, that's part of the discussion that we have to have. Uh, but the other element of this, and this is something that I've been going on with for the longest time, because I think it's just abysmal, the, the government's record on this. The Ford government proactively inspected 11, that's 11, of the province's 651 long-term care homes from March 1st until April the 15th of this year. That's while the pandemic was going on. And they still only did 11 inspections, 2% of it. So it's no wonder things aren't getting a whole lot better. Is it going to be any better once the vaccine rolls out? I want to bring Dr. Amit Aria into the conversation, palliative care physician and uh, joint faculty member with both McMaster University and the University of Toronto. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you're with us here today. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me on the show. I'm glad, Doctor, that there's seemingly, anyway, more conversation about the uh, the horrid conditions in some long-term care facilities. Uh, I guess what exacerbates the concern, though, is that not a whole lot seems to be getting done about it, which raises some questions about just how effective is, is the rollout of the vaccine going to be in these facilities? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, 
rolling out the vaccine first is a mammoth challenge, which requires a lot of, you know, logistical coordination between sort of, um, you know, the people who are bringing the vaccine. It's not just so simple as putting, you know, like, you know, you're giving the shot in someone's arm, but there needs to be consent discussions and inf- information provided to substitute decision makers. I mean, thousands of substitute decision makers across the province because 70% of the residents in long-term care have dementia. And of course, a vaccine doesn't solve the ongoing abandonment and neglect of people in long-term care homes, uh, which is due to understaffing and under-resourcing. Well, and that's a point we've made. And I know, obviously, with the work you've been doing over the years, Doctor, I mean, you, mm-hmm. you, I'm singing to the choir here. Uh, the, the problems that we've outlined uh, with our series on Global News, but that, that I know you and others have talked about, didn't start with the pandemic, did it? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, long-term care homes were already uh, in a crisis before the pandemic with respect to not having enough trained staff on site, not having transparency and accountability. And really what we've seen with COVID-19 is that it's magnified all of the gaps in care. And it's a crisis within a crisis that we're seeing. Why is it? Is it a a societal thing? Because there are are other societies in other countries, of course, uh, that have the utmost respect for for the the elderly and for seniors and and do their best to try to look after them in in their their senior years. Uh, We tend to, and I don't mean to sound crass about this, we tend to warehouse them. Yeah, so that's absolutely true. I mean, the long-term care home system was never really designed with the needs of, you know, the actual seniors that are there and their family members in mind. I mean, it was a, it's a system that provides care that is rationed and regimented, kind of like comparable to like a military barracks, rather than something really focused on quality of life, comfort, dignity and respect, which is absolutely what our seniors deserve. And with this tragedy now, I mean, across the country, we've seen like, you know, 9,000 deaths. Uh, due to COVID-19 in long-term care homes, 9,000 deaths. And in our province, it's it's over 2,500 now. I mean, uh, now is the time to change this system and fix this system, you know, once and for all. Well, and again, I'm, we're waiting for the government to step in, and I know that you know, they, they've gone through some motions. They've had a, a couple of inquiries about this. Actually, one was an independent inquiry where we heard some terrible mm-hmm. stories about the living conditions from some of the residents. And, uh, the one that I, I think broke everybody's heart uh, was, was the, the one gentleman who actually testified with the committee and said, I, I'd rather die, I'd rather go through assisted suicide than to go back in for another bout of, of, of COVID, which is, this is just as we're heading into the second wave. Uh, that's a bold statement, but it sure tells a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it once again speaks to, I mean, a problem with how we, you know, value our seniors and families and the frontline health workers in this uh, sector of the health system. I mean, they should be the ones making the decisions about uh, what changes are needed at this time. But right now, I mean, we're kind of seeing this very top-down, you know, paternalistic approach. And that kind of, you know, is the problem. I mean, the people who understand and live and breathe in these long-term care homes aren't the ones making the decisions. Now, I know that, the, you know, the government's announced that they're going to go through a, what they call a staffing blitz. They're going to try to hire uh, people and train them, and they, they've actually advertised uh, four positions. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is they say they probably won't see much of a, an uptake on this in the homes themselves until uh, 2025, uh, which is cold comfort to the people that are in those facilities right now. Yeah, I mean, absolutely true, Bill. I mean, the median prognosis in uh, Ontario's long-term care homes is 18 months. 
18 months. So that is actually no comfort to people uh, who, is li- who are living in long-term care now. And it's really kind of in a way, in, in my opinion, as a physician who works frontline in these long-term care homes, validating ongoing neglect and abandonment. And, you know, even when we talk about all these numbers and money, I mean, sometimes it's a little bit easy to get lost in this, but this isn't really about that. This is about human rights for our seniors and their fundamental right to be treated with dignity and respect and receive the care that they deserve. Well, and just as a comparator, and I'm, I know you know a lot of this is sing, circling back to the to the government, and I think it should because mm-hmm. I mean they have they have oversight here, and you know, and if they're screwing up, I think we need to talk about that. Uh, but yeah. they're talking about a plan that may roll out over the next four to five years. The province of Quebec, and we already know about the challenges they're having with COVID. Uh, they instituted a similar program, as you know, doctor. They did it with it over the summer. They, it took them two and a half months, not five years. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it, it just shows us that action was needed a long time ago. We had the whole summer to act in between the first and second wave here in Ontario. And, uh, you know, Quebec is an excellent example where they also had a similar humanitarian catastrophe. They had the military in their homes as we did. And they hired 10,000 PSWs called orderlies in that province. Um, you know, over the summer, they provided them, uh, you know, a very good wage for education and an even better wage, uh, you know, for them to work. And here in Ontario, our announcement was uh, in, in September, so far too late. The announcement was uh, committed to only hiring 3,000 PSWs, and that includes home care as well. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's only a temporary announcement. And these are health workers that have not been treated well in the system and actually, um, you know, have already left the profession in droves. I mean, there's uh, PSWs are, afford- are reporting a 30 percent um, shortage uh, as compared to before the pandemic. Well, we talked to uh, Natalie Mira from the, the Health Coalition about that, and, and mm. she asked a, what I guess was a rhetorical question, but I think it does deserve an answer. How are you going to attract people to the to the industry to be, as you say, PSWs, uh, when people that are already employed in that position are leaving because of the stress and the low pay and the, and the pressure that's on them? Yeah, so you mentioned some of the factors. I mean, we need to give everyone a decent living wage. We need to make sure that they have sick leave. Uh, we need to make sure that um, everyone who's working, um, to the best of our ability, is full-time and a single site, meaning that they're only at one long-term care facility. And the other thing we need to realize, I mean, this is actually one of the most dangerous jobs that is currently out there during the pandemic. I mean, these people have literally, uh, along with the residents, of course, but the frontline health workers like PSWs have literally given their lives during this pandemic. We've had nine people who have died already in long-term care, and they need better protections in terms of infectious, uh, you know, uh, IPAC supports, what we call infection prevention and control, uh, you know, better supports to don and off PPE as well. Are they trained at all, or did they just say, "Look at you know, there, there are the masks. Uh, you know, make sure you wear a mask." Uh, that there should be a little more to it, which uh, again raises the specter of uh, what kind of protocols being established, if there is one, uh, to, about the uh, the dissemination of, of the vaccine. I mean, are people going to be trained how to do this? Is it, that you would think that there's going to be some assistance, some help here? Yeah, I mean, there needs to be much more coordination, uh, specifically when you're asking about the vaccine bill, um, you know, between uh, actual people who work in long-term care and uh, actually will be giving the vaccine and the sort of the committee which has been appointed by the government on, of, of Ontario on Friday. I mean, there was no one on that sort of uh, task force who actually uh, works in long-term care and gives these vaccines. No long-term care family doctors or nurse practitioners and no nurses, which is actually appalling. I mean, you know, we need the people who are going to be giving the shots to also be calling the shots. 
I, I, again, this is it's it's appalling when you start seeing the, the numbers here, and, and as you say, the composition of this board, uh, because they're certainly talking the talk about yeah, we're going to do something about long term care. This would be an ideal opportunity to at least include somebody on that advisory board that has some knowledge of what goes on in these facilities and and how that current environment is going to impact the the rollout of the vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I'm very worried about that. Once again, I mean, uh, from several perspectives. I mean, uh, you know, of course. I mean, protecting the residents in long-term care with a vaccine starts with protecting the staff. And, I mean, you know, two-thirds of the frontline health care staff in long-term care are racialized women. I mean, many of them, many of these people live in multi-generational households. They take crowded public transit where it's not possible to actually physically distance. And they're actually more likely to have other conditions uh, which increase the risk of COVID-19 itself, like diabetes and asthma. And, you know, um, due to several, uh, you know, sort of factors, um, you know, systemic discrimination, which has occurred, for example, they may have a historical distrust of vaccines. And I also pointed to, you know, the frail elderly population with lives in long-term care. And we don't want family members to be undergoing guilt after, um, you know, vaccination is given, where if someone dies shortly afterwards, then they're blaming themselves for, you know, being given the vaccine. This is going to take a lot of time and effort to actually um, explain things to, you know, family members and residents about what the benefits of the vaccines are. And that conversation uh, needs to start now, and that support needs to be provided here and now. What's the, uh, the, the concern right now, Doctor, and uh, from your experience and the research you've done about this, about the impact this is having on the residents in these facilities right now? The, the word I keep hearing often, more often than not is depression. Yeah. So I really think that, I mean, um, you know, through the pandemic, we've failed to realize really a lot of the specialized care that is needed for seniors in long-term care. This is not, um, you know, a sector where really anyone could go in. People need specialized training in geriatrics and in palliative care to work in this sector. And that's everyone, PSWs, nurses, nurse practitioners, social workers, physicians, and so on. Um, You know, and we haven't also realized that people's lives, especially those who are in their last months and years, don't just revolve around infection control. I mean, we have to keep them safe and do our best to keep them, um, you know, like, you know, keep staff uh, people from bringing in the virus inadvertently and improve that, reduce community spread. But we also have to make sure that they're not socially isolated. Social isolation is itself a killer for seniors in long-term care. I, I don't want to drag you into the political realm here. I uh, wouldn't do that to you, doctor. But mm-hmm. it, it, they, they, there is there is an element to that here, and because what the prime minister has been talking about uh, for the last couple of months is is a coordinated effort between the federal government and the provincial governments uh, to try to develop some sort of an umbrella oversight for this, or at least uh, you know some parameters for this. Uh, but it becomes a turf war because I know that there's been a pushback from some of the pro- premiers already to say that's that's our ball here. You don't do health care. We do. Just give us the money. Uh, with that in mind, and if that's the attitude that's going to prevail, uh, are you hopeful or, or not so hopeful that, that we can develop a strategy that's going to at least address a lot of the concerns you've just raised? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think I fluctuate personally if you're asking me to from, from day to day hope and sort of fear <laughs> and being exasperated. Yeah, from day to day. But, I mean, now is not the time for, for anyone to kind of, you know, have political brownie points. I mean, once again, we have 9,000 uh, people who have died across the country from COVID-19 in long-term care. These deaths were all avoidable. And we have to all, all come together as a nation, look, our, look at ourselves in the mirror and make this right. 
now is the time to kind of look at these long-standing issues where we have this underfunded patchwork of services across the country, which is also heavily reliant on for-profit care rather than a, a systemic uh, care that provides seniors with the life that they actually deserve. Are there two levels of care between uh, the, the, the provincially owned, the, the, the private sector and the public sector institutions? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, that's the case. We have, I mean, here in Canada, once again, we pride ourselves on, you know, universal health care as being a Canadian value, but we only have to look at long-term care to see this two-tier system um, in, in play. Um, absolutely, there are differences in the standard of care between for-profit long-term care homes and uh, not-for-profit and municipal homes. This is well known before the pandemic, where they had a higher um, chance of, um, of, of hospitalizations and deaths for the same residents. And during the pandemic, even uh, you know during the second wave, um, residents uh, living in for-profit long-term care homes um, have three times the risk of catching COVID-19. And 80%, 80% of the deaths uh, which, have occurred, w- w- which have occurred so far in the second wave have occurred in for-profit long-term care facilities. The voices of concern are, are getting louder. Uh, I, I know government's hearing it. I'm not so sure that they're listening. I guess uh, we'll certainly see this week with uh, the, the protocol they developed. Doctor, thank you so much for the great work that you're doing on behalf of, uh, of the, uh, the facilities and the residents in these facilities and the staff in these facilities as well. And uh, we will stick with this until we finally get a positive response from government. Thanks so much for this today, though. Great talking with you. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Take care. Dr. Amita Ria, a palliative care physician uh, both at uh, McMaster University and University of Toronto. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.